The scripture reading today is Philippians 3, 7 through 16. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's a privilege to be here and worshiping with you this morning. Fantastic spring day. Diana and I were talking as we were preparing with the others uh, for the worship service upstairs and saying that there's a short window of time in Philadelphia that feels just like this. So it's great to take advantage of it. Hey, um, we are starting a new series, and this will take us right to the end of June. And one of the things that we've been we've discovered as we work together and talk together through the gospel and relationships is there are a lot of people here right in our midst who have been going through difficult things. And it's hard to know when the pressure's on, how does the gospel fit? How does the gospel work out in the midst of those difficult things? What should I look like? What should my life look like? What should my hope look like when things get tough? And so we're doing a series that is meant to help you in the midst of struggle, in the midst of difficult things, to figure out how to take the riches and the resources and the beauty that we have in the gospel and the stability that we have in the gospel and uh, use it. It's there. So what does it mean to have that, um, to apply the gospel to our lives when things are, when things are going tough? And so we're going to look at that uh, through a series called How to Live Right When Your, Your Life Goes Wrong. This is the first of ten weeks that we'll look at this. And so, the, again, what we're doing in the home meetings is that we're tracking along with a passage that we're looking at today. You'll look at that this week. And each week we'll just track along with the, Each of the leaders and co-leaders of the home meetings have an extra book by the, the same name of the series, and it's a great resource to help them uh, anticipate any other kinds of questions that might come up with regards to the gospel and suffering. It's a very helpful um, extra resource, but we're going to be following along with the text. This first, um, this first in the series, we go back to Philippians. Now, we looked at these passages in November. I was looking back through my notes, and so we've got to come at them a little bit different way, particularly with regards to today. And what we're going to do today is uh, we're going to think about how the rules won't change us. The rules won't change us. 
but growing relationship with Christ will. All right? The rules won't change us, but a growing relationship with Christ will. Let's take time and just pray and for uh, God's blessing on our time together, and then let's get into two brief points that we'll cover. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need your presence. We're impoverished and bankrupt on our own. And we know that we can't come to you on our own, but that we have an intercessor who stands before you and intercedes for us, our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the fact that we can come to you now through him. We confess how much we need you. We ask that you would reveal more and more of your glory and your greatness and your love to us as we worship through the word. Be with us now as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the rules won't change us, but a growing relationship with Jesus will. We're going to look at just two brief points. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11, dealing with assets, liabilities, and the gospel. Assets, liabilities, and the gospel. And then verses um, 12 through 16, we're going to talk about the goal. What's the goal of all of this? And we're going to see that's the upward call of God. So 7 through 11, assets, liabilities, and the gospel. 12 through 16, the goal, the upward call of God. Now, when you're thinking about when you're thinking about assets, liabilities, and the gospel, accounting comes to mind, right? What Paul talks about uh, whatever he had for gain, he counts as loss, right? So he's using kind of an accounting term, accounting pictures. And there are different types of accounting, but good accounting in- includes this. Good accounting includes tracking of assets and liabilities. So what you do is you put together a certain number of items on the asset side, right? And a certain amount of liabilities on the liability side. And you calculate them to see how close they come. One of the, uh, there was a book that was very popular a number of years ago called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And uh, he defined an asset as this. He said, an asset is is something that puts money in my pocket and a liability is something that takes money out of my pocket. And he uses a controversial example because a lot of people, for example, think of a house with a mortgage as an asset. But he said, well, if you just have a house with a mortgage, it takes money out of your pocket each month. It's actually a liability and you're considering it otherwise, right? And then he would say, but if you have a rental property and you're renting and the rent takes care of the mortgage but also provides you income, then the property is an asset. So he makes that kind of distinction. Not everyone agrees with him, but... The idea is that assets are assets, liabilities are liabilities, and they're two different columns. Now, the image that Paul gives us here in verses 7 and 8 is Paul's talking about his assets, right? He's talking about his assets. We didn't see it in what was printed, but in verses 5 and 6, Paul had just declared that in terms of his status as a member of God's people, Israel, he had nothing on the liability side at all. Nothing at all. Every way you looked at it with regard to being a Jew, he had assets. All right? Verses 5 and 6 read this way. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He had assets as a member of God's people. But does that mean that his account was full of those assets? Does it mean that his account was full of those assets? No. The answer is no. He drew a line through every item that looked as if it belonged in his asset column and placed all of them on the other side of the page instead, and they're now part of the liability column. 
They're now part of the liability column rather than the asset one. What caused Paul to do this in his accounting? What caused him to take everything that would have been an asset to him and put it over in the liability column? What caused it? Paul had discovered something to put on the asset side in comparison with which everything else could only be considered a liability. And that something is actually someone. It's Jesus. And so we're going to look at, at what, he's, what he's doing there. Paul had said earlier in his letter that Jesus didn't regard his advantage. He had a huge advantage. You know what his advantage was? Equality with God, Paul called it. Jesus had a huge advantage, and he didn't, he didn't uh, consider it something to exploit. Instead, rather, he interpreted it as the vocation to die on the cross. And that's why God exalted him. So he didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped. He didn't exploit that fact, but he laid it down. He gave up his privileges. And so Paul here doesn't regard the huge privileges he had. Member of God's people, trained in the law, expert education. He was a Bible scholar. He had a, lot, he had a great lineage, a great family background. He had a lot going for him. And he puts it all on the liability side. He doesn't regard the huge privileges he had, which he listed in verses 4 and 5, as something to take advantage of. Instead, he discovered in Jesus the true meaning of membership in God's people is found in Jesus' suffering, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' ascension, and sending a spirit to make us new, to make us new kinds of people. And that brings a profound hope. And that's what Paul meant by having Jesus as his asset, Right? Jesus is in his representation of his people. You get that? Jesus, in his representation of his people, had at last done what every other, even those with tremendous privileges, even someone like Paul, could not do. Jesus had him been, in and of himself, the light of the world, the means of salvation, the doorway to the new heavens and the new earth, and the renewal of all things. I bring that up because Paul is going to get to it. Paul said that he wanted none of his old assets now, but rather to gain Jesus, to know Jesus, to be found in Jesus, to be defined by Jesus, faithfulness, to know the power of his resurrection, which lies along the road of his suffering and death. You have to go that way. If you're going to deal with suffering, deal with things going wrong, you have to go through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Paul is directing us to have Jesus as our only asset. He's directing us to have Jesus as the only one in our asset column from which we take our security, our significance, our confidence, our very identity. He's challenging us to have Jesus at the very center of who we are and what we do. And with Jesus at the center as his only asset, Paul shows that assets are a few things, all right? And we'll just briefly unpack them. First, Jesus is our asset is a matter of status, Jesus as our asset is a matter of status. One of the things that Paul says is that God regards all Christians as being in Christ. The theme of verse 9, which sums up a lot about what Paul goes on to say in Romans and Galatians, is this contrast between being members of God's people and what each person does in regards to the law. So that's the first side of the contrast, being members of God's people and what each person does in regards to the law. And that's contrasted with being members of God's covenant family through what Jesus has done in the law. 
You see the difference? On one side, we're in focus in our relationship to obeying the law. On the other side, in the contrast, it's Jesus who's in focus, who has obeyed the law on our behalf. That way, uh, the way we share in Jesus' faithfulness, the way that we share in Jesus' faithfulness on our behalf is by faith. We do that by faith. And our belief that the crucified and risen Jesus is our representative, the Lord of heaven and earth, and our loyal to him, our sign and seal that we have an asset column consisting simply of him, over against all the other assets or liabilities that we could ever, attain, ever accrue in either of the columns. You understand? Jesus is the sole focus. So that's one thing. And another thing is Jesus' asset is a matter of personal knowledge. It's not just knowing... Uh, it's, it's more than a matter of just personal knowledge. It's not just knowing about Jesus, but knowing him personally in relationship. Do you understand that about Christianity? It's not just knowing about Jesus. You don't open the Bible and learn about him and learn about his life and, and read about what he did in the Gospels and, and Luke and Acts and how he worked through his spirit in the early church. And you read for information and you put it away and you put it on the other shelf you know, the shelf of the other books in your collection. It's not just for information, not going for that. Christianity is about a relationship with the living God, with Jesus. Have you ever known someone who talks only about themselves when you're together? Have you ever met somebody like that? Talks only about themselves. I mean, really, there's not like you... You get together and they say, let me tell you all about da 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 and it goes on and on and on. And um, at the end of your time, you realize, wait, they didn't really ask anything about me. I met with um, somebody a number of years ago and uh, we sat down to have a drink together and I began, uh, the, he, he began with, how are you doing? Catch me up. And I spent about 20 minutes sort of drawing the big pictures. It's been a couple years since I had seen him. And for the next five hours after that 20 minutes, he told me about himself without a break. It, it was interesting. So what does that say? What does it say? It says you're not in a relationship, but it's an occasion to focus on yourself at the expense of someone else, right? When you do all the talking or someone else does all the talking and doesn't let you talk. Now, if that's true with us people, how much more true is it when you go to God and only focus on yourself in prayer? How much more true is the fact that there's no relationship when you approach God that way? The truth of the matter is, he wants you to listen to him. As you meditate on his word, as you meditate on the truths of the gospel, when you pray and when you seek him out, he wants you to listen. When you ask him questions, he wants you to shh. He wants to speak back through his word. He wants his spirit to cultivate in your heart a knowledge of who he is and to grow you up in him and to make you like him. But if you're only ever going to him and just blah, 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 blah. You know, I'm not saying that popcorn prayer isn't important. It is. You've got to do that. In fact, Paul says in other places, pray continually. And on every occasion, do that. And present your request to God. Do that. Those are commands. But do you realize that if you're in relationship with the living God and you're only ever just talking to him and you're not taking time to listen to him, what kind of relationship is that? Are you relating to the living God or you, have you hired a personal assistant to take care of things for you? So you've got, you're in relationship. It's a matter of personal relationship. And Jesus is our asset also is a matter of conformity of life 
Paul is committed to the patterns of behavior that characterize Jesus formed in us. Now be careful here. I'm going to say it right now. Be careful here. We talked in our last um, series about the duties that flow out of the grace that we have. But you need to be careful. Why? Because you can slip into being religious rather than being in relationship with God. And that's not relationship with God. That's moralism. Let me tell you about moralism for a second. Moralism is the view that you are acceptable to God, to the world, to others, yourself, through what you attain. Your religion, then, is filled with rules. And you often have a view of God as being very holy and just. The problem is that this will either lead to a self-hatred because at some point you're going to realize you can't live up to the rules or it's going to lead to self-inflation because you feel like you have and that God owes you for what you've done. But do you see who's in the asset column then? If you put yourself in the asset column, you've taken Jesus out. It's not, it's not the gospel. It's, it's moralism. Christians come to see that even their best deeds, not just their words, have really been ways of avoiding Jesus as Savior. Even your best deeds can be ways of avoiding Jesus as Savior. Uh, Christians come to see that Christianity is not fundamentally an invitation to get more religious. A Christian comes to say, say, over time, though I have often failed to obey God's law, the deeper problem was why I was trying to obey it. Even my efforts to obey it has just been a way of seeking to be my own Savior. Friends, to get the gospel... To get the gospel is to turn from relying on our own assets and rely on Jesus as our only asset that enables us to have a relationship with God. Okay? So assets, liabilities, and the gospel. Jesus is our only asset. And oh, what an asset he is. Next, verses 12 through 16, the goal of our relationship with God is the upward call of God. Paul ended the previous paragraph with the talk of the resurrection. Okay, we're start, I'm starting in verse 12. In verse 11, he ends it with the talk of the resurrection, which lies still in the future and towards which, therefore, all Christians are drawn like athletes sprinting towards the end of the race. We've got Broad Street race coming up. We have the pen relays, right? Uh, it, this is what Paul is liking this to. That we, he says, he stresses this in verse 13, it's important to concentrate on the aim in view, keeping on going forwards towards that goal. However, there are a couple of things that he points out about that. One, as you see evidence of your maturing as a Christian, Paul warns against the idea that you can stop sprinting to to the end of the race. He warns against that. You can't stop sprinting. Imagine the pen relays or imagine the Broad Street run and you're out ahead of the pack or your team is, you know, out ahead of the relays and you're like, cool, we're ahead and you, you start walking, Right? It's not how our race is won, and you can never let up until you reach the finish line, okay? Maturity as a Christian means knowing that you haven't arrived and that you must still keep pressing on forward towards the goal. The seasoned athlete knows that the race isn't won or lost until the end has been reached. And so it's the same for us as we apply the gospel to our lives, especially when things are difficult, especially when the situations are getting tough. And as he says in verse 16, it's important to maintain the position you've reached, So what then is the goal, the finishing line, for us? What's the goal or the finishing line? What are we pressing on to? What are we pressing on to? Paul describes it in verse 14 with an interesting phrase, the prize that is waiting there. It's like a silver cup or a medal for the winning athlete. 
And this is the upward call of God in Jesus our King. This has been often seen as simply heaven, the place where you go after you die. But Paul actually means much more than that, and it can't be just heaven that he means. One commentator puts it like this, talking about this passage. He says, in verse 20 and 21, which we shall come to in the next section, he speaks not of our going up to heaven, but the Lord King Jesus himself coming from heaven to earth in order to transform the world and change our bodies so that they are like his own resurrected and glorified body. Living in heaven isn't the goal we are aiming at. Rather, it's living in God's new world with our new bodies. So the upward call seems to be the resurrection life itself, straining forward towards it like an athlete aiming at a finish line, and the prize that waits beyond it means living in the present in light of that future. Look, maybe this is an, an, an idea that you haven't considered. I was, uh, today, Matt and Rachel, or Matt and Rachel Allison, uh, and they had a fantastic win, uh, wedding, and I was able to cook for them and their out-of-town guests for their rehearsal dinner. It was a lot of fun, and I had a great team assembled, and it was a fabulous night. And towards the end of the rehearsal dinner, Matt walked into the kitchen. Matt Allison walked into the kitchen, and he said, uh, thank you, and this was great. And I said, how are you feeling? And he said, I am so looking forward to this time tomorrow when I'll be married. Right? And I was thinking about that because I got to see that moment happen. And I was thinking about that afterwards. Is even the wedding celebration is only the beginning of life together. It's not the end in and of itself, but it's the beginning. And so in the same way, you've got to realize that there's a destination beyond heaven. I told you before, I think, that I had a theology professor at Westminster who called heaven affectionately a bus stop because it's not the fullness of all things that, that we're told about in Scripture, where we're headed, the finish line, the prize, the goal. Uh, so this may not be a notion that some of you considered before, but think a few moments with me about the larger scale of redemptive story about redemptive story and the kingdom of God. And it points something even more wonderful than the notion of heaven. So what do we know? What do we know about the kingdom of God from Scripture? We know a few things. One, we know that the kingdom of God is already, Paul speaks in the past tense a lot about our identity in Christ that's already there. We're already seated with him in the heavenlies, he said. But there's a not yet aspect of it too where that's not fully true, that's not fully realized yet. Uh, in Mark and in Matthew and the Gospels, Jesus comes announcing the kingdom has arrived. Uh, in Luke, it says the kingdom exists in the midst of gathered Christians, right? Since the time of John the Baptist, forceful people had been laying a hold of it and entering it. You can read that in Matthew and Luke. The strong man Satan is even now bound by the king, enabling us to plunder his goods, taking away his possessions, as evidenced by Jesus' exorcisms in Matthew and Luke. So the kingdom has come in Jesus, but there's a sense in which it has not already fully arrived. His disciples were to pray for the kingdom to arrive. We see that in Matthew 6. At the end of time, his followers would receive the kingdom. The Son of Man would return to bring the kingdom. His agricultural parables show that the kingdom of God is by nature a growing thing, which is planted by Jesus and grows by invisible divine activity. Like a seed... Its presence is nearly hidden, but it's revolutionary and eventually will grow into all fullness and overcome all opposition to God's rule. All right, so we know those things about the kingdom. What else do we know about the kingdom? 
We know that the kingdom of God is the renewal of the whole world by healing of all the results of sin, spiritual, psychological, social, and physical. Friends, the Bible shows that because of our brokenness, because of sinfulness, that we experience profound alienation. Profound alienation at every level. And let's define alienation as disintegration which arises from using an object for a purpose other than that for which it was designed. So if I use Jeff's iPhone to drive a nail into the wall to hang a picture, I have alienated it from its purpose, right? And in the same way, just as the iPhone is not built for hammering nails, human beings were designed to both know and serve their creator, God. And when humankind determined to be the master, instead of allowing God to be the master, the immediate result was various levels of alienation. Think about it for a second. You have spiritual alienation. Genesis 3 is the first place we see this fall, right? And we have spiritual alienation. We're cut off from God. Here's one helpful example. One way to understand our alienation from God is the solar system. There's a harmony between the planets because they all agree on the center, the sun. But if each planet were to have a different center for its orbit, there would be cataclysmic collisions. God's center is his own glory. He does everything because it's consistent with his own righteous, holy, perfect nature. We, however, center on our own comfort and happiness. We live for our own glory. Therefore, there is an inevitable inevitable collision between God and man. Man is traumatized by. Man is traumatized by and is hostile to the holy presence of God. Yet we were built for fellowship with God. We cannot live with God and we cannot live without God. And this is the essence of human beings' conditions. All of our problems flow out of it and nothing can be understood apart from it. So we're alienated from God. But we're also alienated psychologically. We're cut off from our very selves because of sin. We're unhappy. We're guilty and feeling shameful. We lack meaning. We wonder who we are. We have fear. We're anxious. That's not how God created us to be. An alienation from ourselves, divided like that. But we also have social alienation. We see back in Genesis 3 that we're cut off from each other. We not only rebel against God and hide from him, but we hide from each other as well. Our social problems are myriad. Loneliness. We have interpersonal conflict. We gave a whole series. This last whole series that we did was on relationships and the way that interpersonally we are alienated from one another and how the gospel addresses that. We have marital and family problems. We have poverty. We have class struggle. We have constant political confrontation and ineffectiveness. And we have physical alienation. We're cut off from nature. Once our friend, under our dominion, the natural world is now hostile to us. And our alienation from nature results in famine and disease and decay, environmental problems, natural disasters, death itself. Alienation at every single possible imaginable level. But remember, the prize. What's the prize? As Paul puts it, the one to keep our focus on and strive towards is the healing of the nations by the king. In Christ, even the natural order will be redeemed. Psalm 96 tells us that what will happen when Jesus returns to judge and to rule the earth. Psalm 96 tells us, it says, Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. 
Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and all that is within it. Then shall the trees of the woods sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people with his truth. This refers to the final day. This refers to the final day when we come finally into the presence of our Lord and know the freedom of being completely submitted to his royal kingship. The healing kingship of Christ will extend to all life and nature. The blessedness of the kingdom is radical and all-embracing and all the alienations that we experience by sin we done away with and healed. It's a long way from Christmas. Hannah, how many days? Oh, come on. Oh. <laughs> She's being bashful. She actually, she has a great uh, mind for quick days and, you know, tracking with numbers and hours and things like that. Many days from Christmas, but each Christmas we sing a hymn from Isaac Watts. It's a hymn of praise to the blessedness of the kingdom. And Isaac Watts paraphrases Psalm 96 in stanza 2. He says, Joy to the world! Joy to the world, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ, while fields and floods and rocks and hills and plains repeat this sounding joy. And then, in striking language, he announces that the kingdom of Christ means the complete reversal of the curse of sin, pronounced by the Lord in Genesis 3. No more, no more, let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. We sing about it at Christmas, and it is, as Paul says here, our focus, the end towards which we strive, the finish line. The kingdom of God is the means for the renewal of the entire world and all dimensions of life. And from the throne of Jesus Christ flows new life and power such that no disease, decay, poverty, blemish, or pain can stand before his throne. I leave you with one question. One question as we go out of the week and as we go into this new series together. If this is the ministry of the kingdom to heal all of the results of sin in all areas of life, then Liberty Fairmount, shouldn't we also use all of our resources, all of our life, all of our energy to intentionally minister in every area of life, far as the curse is found. He's striving towards the end, Paul is, the finish line. And so our striving should be likewise. Why? Because we have a faithful Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. And he never shirked from the finish line. And he even now, through his spirit, through the power of his grace, brings us faithfully to that finish line. He said the work that he's begun in us, he will begin. He will bring to completion. And he'll make us like him. And he'll take away every aspect of the curse that we experience now. First piece, first building block in understanding how to handle suffering, how to handle life when it goes wrong with the gospel. Okay? Let's pray together and come to him now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your peace. Thank you for the fact that our asset is you and not anything we do or haven't done. Thank you for the fact that we can uh, be in personal relationship with you, 
that we can strive towards the renewal of all things and let that be present in our lives together here and now, not just among one another, but in our neighborhoods, among our friends, among our colleagues, even among our enemies, among those here in the city who are our neighbors, our neighborhoods, our vocations, every place, far as the curse is found, you call us to be salt and light as we looked at last week. You call us to be striving towards the end with the hope that we have in you. We lay our burdens on you, Jesus, and we run with you. Thank you for giving us such a great race. Thank you for the fact that the outcome is certain and that we can depend on you. Be with us now as we continue to worship. It's in Jesus.